read verses 1 through 14. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. While Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We begin by acknowledging that that's exactly what it is. Lord, it's your word. It's alive and powerful because it comes from you. It's about you. And your Holy Spirit attends its teaching, Lord, to break open our hearts so that we might hear what you have to say to us as your church and as your individual people, Lord. And so we thank you for these words and pray, Lord, that we would not get in their way, but that they would have their way in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Tens of thousands have applied to be part of either Extreme Makeover or Extreme Makeover Home Edition. For those of you blissfully unaware, those are television shows. They solicit people who desire either themselves or their homes be renovated. The people are put through radical surgical procedures. The homes are practically demolished and then rebuilt. We have something like that in our text. John the Baptist called God's people out into the wilderness for an extreme makeover. It involved filling valleys and leveling mountains and straightening what was crooked and smoothing over what was rough. If it were on TV, it might have been called Extreme Makeover Spiritual Edition. It wasn't accomplished by surgery or construction, but by repentance. Some of us may want a surgeon's extreme makeover. I'm just going to leave that alone. Or a contractor's extreme makeover for our home. All of us need an extreme makeover of the heart. There's no application to fill out, nothing you need to do in order to qualify. All you must do is repent. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, repent, and you will stay ready for the return of the king. 
And number two, repent, and you will start revealing the realness of the kingdom. First of all, in verses one through six, the word is repent, and you will stay ready for the return of the king. Repent is a word we normally associate with the evangelism of the unsaved. John's message of repentance was not really geared towards unbelievers in the sense that it was given to the people of God. And we're going to suggest to you this morning that this is a word for believers, an important word. And so in verse 1, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iduria and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. The Jews were an oppressed people. Their land was occupied by invaders. They were the subjects of the Roman Empire, ruled by its Caesars who had appointed governors and tetrarchs over them. The Romans went so far as to interfere with the religion of the Jews. In verse 2, you read, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Let's stop there. Since a Jewish high priest served for life and there was only one of them, how could there be two? Well, historians tell us that the Roman government was appointing its own religious leaders to maintain greater control over the Jews. Apparently, the Roman authorities had deposed the Jewish high priest, Annas. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. He held the office, but Annas retained his title and probably much of the power and influence it carried. Occupied, oppressed, the government was even messing with their religious beliefs. There was only one solution. In verse 2, it goes on to say, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, you have to pause and admit that this is the weirdest possible solution. When we hear of a people that are occupied and oppressed and don't have religious freedom, we want to go and liberate them. It's the American way. There needs to be a revolution. We need to hit that hard and strong. And without criticizing that by any means, God saw their situation differently. He saw them from the inside out, looking first upon the heart. Government and religion were not their problem. Therefore, a change in either of them would not be a solution. Their hearts needed radical change, the kind made possible by a revival of God's Word. Maybe your issues are with the government or with some religious establishment, though I doubt it. More than likely, your issues are things like your marriage or your family and its relationships or your employment. You need to see your situation from the inside out. What does God want to do in your heart? We spend a great deal of our time ignoring and then trying to escape from situations that God has constructed from before the foundation of the world. And what God wants to do is say, now, in this marriage, in this job, in your family, in your church, what kind of a heart do you have for me? What are you doing to bring forth 
the Word of God? What difference does it make that you and I have fellowship together? And that's really the issue. Back at the end of chapter 1, we learn that John lived out in the desert wilderness. He was a weird guy. And, and I say that because it's an encouragement that God loves to use weird people. What it means that he was living in the desert, I don't know. Uh, did he live in a community with the Essenes, who were these radical, like, consecrated Jews? Did he live at Qumran? Did he live in a pup tent? You know, I don't know. I know he ate locusts, dipped them in honey. One of the ladies who grew up in the Middle East and, and told me she spent a lot of time in Saudi Arabia said that this is a, really a delicacy. It, it's kind of like our version of chicken McNuggets. <laughs> Locusts and honey. She said, it's funny how many things taste just like chicken. <laughs> but uh, this is a, you know, and, and, but, but weird. It, it was a little bit weird even for his day. And he had this kind of weird garb. One of the authors I read said that John's very life and presence and appearance were a sermon all in and of themselves. As soon as he came on the scene, a sermon was preached to you. He lived out in the desert wilderness. He waited there until he received direction from the Lord. Only then did he come preaching the message God had given him. Timing is so important in serving the Lord. John prophesied, filled from his mother's womb with the Holy Spirit, nevertheless waiting decades to burst on the scene when the message was fully formed in his heart and when the timing was perfect. The need of God's people was great, but their greatest need was a return to God. You know, we sometimes specialize in identifying needs within a church, within a family, with, within a, a person. We think we know what the greatest need that that person has is. And we construct some type of a ministry to meet that person's need. That's okay as long as you've waited on the Lord. And it is in His perfect timing because only God knows the truest need of that person. Only God can meet their need. And so we want to wait on the Lord. The greatest need that God's people had was a return to Him. A message must be formed in the heart of a man who would then deliver it with no compromise. Overthrowing Rome, that's a small thing for God. He can overthrow a nation like that overnight or faster. Read the Old Testament. Look at history. God is able to destroy and, and tear down nations in a moment of time. Watching the funeral and all of the things this week with President Reagan and being reminded of the evil empire, the Soviet Union. None of us ever thought that that would crumble. And yet, overnight, gone. Now, okay, let's give President Reagan his credit, but that's a work of God. That's God working through a man, working through a nation. And even if that not, get into Bible history. There are nations that existed, great nations, world-dominating empires. And literally overnight they were overthrown according to God's plan. And so overthrowing Rome, that's a small thing. Reaching the hearts of men and women, that's what God is about. And that is no small task. 
There is nothing harder at times than the heart of a man, than the heart of a woman. And God must reach it just the right way, carefully, considerately, preparing a message, preparing a man, bringing it in his timing. And so he went into all the region, verse 3, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Although Jews were sometimes immersed in water to signify a total commitment to God, for the most part, the only persons baptized were Gentiles who converted to become Jews. Let me back up for a minute. Don't think here in terms of your own Christian baptism or any of the New Testament teaching on baptism. This is a Jewish audience. This is a Jewish baptism. It has different symbolism, and I'm going to give that to you in a minute. And so the Jew almost never submitted to baptism. Occasionally, but almost never, Gentiles who wanted to become Jews, who wanted to convert to Judaism and worship the God of Israel, they were baptized. It was symbolic of washing away the filth of their pagan background. John's baptism, therefore, was telling Jews they were no more ready for the arrival of their king than a Gentile. They were no better off spiritually than the Gentiles. Submitting to John's baptism was admitting your deepest spiritual need. And it is a tremendous thing for Jews in great numbers to be baptized as if they were no better than Gentiles. Now, there's some additional symbolism involved with John's baptism. He was performing baptisms, it says, around the Jordan River. It was close to the very place where centuries earlier, Joshua had led the children of Israel out of the wilderness wanderings and into the promised land. Those who went out to be baptized by John in the wilderness were acknowledging that they were in a spiritual wilderness needing to be led into the kingdom of God by their Messiah. It's interesting also to note that the name Joshua is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament Jesus. As Joshua led the Jews into the promised land, Jesus would lead them into the promised kingdom of God on earth. And so this is hugely symbolic, deeply meaningful to the Jew. John's baptism was identified with repentance and the remission of sins. We have our own ideas about what these terms mean. Again, we should set aside our ideas and learn what they mean from the text itself. And so in verses 4 and 5, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. The quote is from Isaiah chapter 40, it's verses 3 through 5. John the Baptist is and was the fulfillment of the voice crying in the wilderness who would immediately precede the coming of the king. In John's day, before a king took a trip, messengers would tell those he was planning to visit that he was coming. They would then prepare the roads for the king's arrival. Potholes would be filled, rough spots would be smoothed out, landscaping and drainage would be improved, trash would be picked up. I mean, you know, if the king was coming, you wanted, to, you wanted it to look nice. You wanted to have, you know, all your freeway signs replaced and, you know, all the, everything working just right. You wanted to put on the best possible display. And so this is the imagery that he's using. And he's using it as a metaphor 
The promised Messiah was coming. His subjects should prepare the way of their Lord. John wasn't talking about roads and landscaping leading into their villages and cities and towns. He was talking about inner pathways, those of the heart, and we know that because he said the preparation they needed to make was to repent. They didn't have to go out and repair the roads. They needed to repent in their heart. Now, repent, I'm sure you know, means to turn around. It means to change your mind. That is how it's defined. Definitions are necessary and they're good, but descriptions are often far better. Repentance is described using five images in this metaphor. I want to look at each of them in turn. First of all, Isaiah said and John quoted, make his paths straight. The straight path is the path that gets you where you are going as quickly as possible. Some of you, if you take a trip, you might check with mapquest.com or Yahoo Maps or maybe you have, you know, Streets and Trips or some other map program on your computer. I always get a big kick out of those. They're lame. We were down in Southern California, as I told you last week, and, and we were in Temecula, and I followed the map program as far as the exit to get to our hotel. Uh, and then at the end of the week, I realized that the hotel had its own exit, uh, the next exit, which would have saved me 10 minutes and, and a lot of traffic hassles, you know, and you could see the freeway or the motel from the freeway, but I followed the map program. And I love those map programs. I don't know if you ever noticed, but they always have a disclaimer at the bottom. Please check to see if this is an accurate map. Well, what do you think I'm doing? I don't know where I'm going. How would I check? You know how you check? You go there and you're not there. That's how you check. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've gotten lost using a map program, but it's still better than getting directions from people. I remember I was going to do a freeway or going to do a funeral up in Stockton, California, and I got, uh, you know, the, uh, this guy on the phone who's going to give me directions, and he said, and then you go up, you know, 99, and then you take the Crosstown Freeway. Okay, now I'm smart enough to know that every city has a Crosstown Freeway, and it's never called the Crosstown Freeway. It's only the Crosstown Freeway because it's across your town and they built it to cross your town. It's got a name or a number. And so I said, what is the number of the Crosstown Freeway? Honey, what's the number of that freeway? He had no idea, and so I had to, like, map out my own thing, you know? So you can't go by anybody's directions. You get lost, and they say, oh, I, oh, I thought you assumed that you were going north, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. And so it's crazy. And so the straight path, if you use these map programs, they sometimes also give you a choice, do you want to get there as quickly as possible, or do you want to take the scenic route? Of course, the scenic route always is through a Denny's because they're the advertiser on the website. <laughs> that's the scenery that they... But anyway, that's a whole other thing. And, and so the straight route, the fastest route, it would be the route I suggest to you with no detours. Now, if you're a Californian, you just don't like detours, and, and you usually don't stop for them. You just go through them. You know this is true. Don't act like it's not true. I don't know how many detours I've driven through because they aren't real detours. They're suggested detours. I don't know whose suggestion it is, but the road actually still goes through. And a real detour, I'm going to tell you what a real detour is. A real detour is not a barricade that you can drive around. 
A real detour is a concrete barricade, it's a spike strip, and it's the highway patrol with guns drawn. That is a detour. <laughs> that is a California detour. Anything else, I've driven, I remember one time, detour. You know, it's middle of winter, uh, Cajon, not the Cajon Pass, but the, the grapevine, and cars are just driving right through these dividers, just like I was. And yeah, we got stuck for 10 minutes up on the top, but it was... Where that detour was going to take me, I have no idea. I may have never gotten back to Hanford. Because you know the thing about detours, you get on them and they don't tell you where you are or where you're going. There's a big arrow, detour, and that's it. <laughs> then you're gone. You, you need to know. And then you, so you plug in your map program and it doesn't know where you are either and you're just lost. Detours. Now, first thing we want to address in our hearts would be anything that may have detoured us from following the Lord. Almost anything can be a detour. I want to suggest some to you right now. I've seen folks take, and this is kind of surprising, but it's true, doctrinal detours. What do you mean by that? They get involved, not in necessarily a teaching of the Bible, but a teaching about the Bible, some doctrine of man, uh, some particular viewpoint about the Bible, some particular theology or way of looking at things, and it becomes a really extreme detour for them. I could give you a list of churches that I know who at one time or another have taken a doctrinal detour and have begun to hype or stand upon one particular version of, of a truth or doctrine and gotten so far off track They've lost, split the church, lost members, wounded people, hurt people, ruined their church. I can name individuals. I'm thinking of one person right now. Tremendous gift of evangelism. There was nobody that ever came into his presence that he didn't share Christ with until he got onto a doctrinal point, and that's all he shared with people. And no one wanted to hear from him, and no one wanted to be around him, and literally it ruined his life. And so there are doctrinal detours. Don't get on them. There are geographic detours. What is it about Hanford? No one wants to live here. For 20, I love, I, you know, I'm, I joke about Hanford and more about Riverdale, but uh, <laughs> we love it here. I mean, we really do. Otherwise, we wouldn't joke. But there are people, you know, over the 20 years I've been here, people come up and they act as if we all have a camaraderie of, of let's get out of here as quickly as possible, and I'm finally going to be get, getting out of here and going someplace else. Now, hear me, that's okay as long as God has called you to go someplace else. But a lot of people have these geographic detours in mind. They want to go to a particular location. Well, that can be from the Lord, or it can just be something you want to do. And again, I can name a lot of people who have gone on a geographic detour into a place where there really is no fellowship. There's no place that they can call home in terms of a, a family of believers in a church. And, and some of them beg to come back, and we say no. <laughs> no, that's not true. But then there are career detours. Uh, there are things that you can involve yourself in in terms of a career. This happens because we're always upwardly mobile. Uh, we're, we're taught that you have to keep climbing the ladder of success. You have to promote and do better all the time. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. I can't say that it's wrong in and of itself, 
unless, again, it becomes some type of detour that takes you off your walk with the Lord. There are relationship detours. This happens not just with young people, but that's a good place to uh, example it. Oh, you've got a girlfriend, yes, or a boyfriend, yes. Are they a Christian? Oh, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. I'll find out. Are they a Christian? I still don't know. They might be. What do you mean? I don't know. I'll find out. They're better than a Christian. Huh, huh. And uh, what, do you, what does that mean? And, and you, you know, you're serving the Lord, you're trying to walk with the Lord, and then you're in a relationship with somebody who's not a Christian, and you get off on a relationship detour. And so this morning, we want to ask the Lord to reveal to us whether or not we've taken a detour in our Christian walk. Second, every valley shall be filled. Now, valleys are low places. They are natural depressions. And so this morning, without sounding too weird, are you low? Are you depressed? Well, then fill your valley. Bring in fill material. Bring in the Word of God. Take your thoughts captive. Preach to yourself. Fill your mind and your heart with God's Word. Fill that valley. I want to be clear about this. I'm not always as clear as I could be. I absolutely believe that there are organic, physical problems that people can have. Obviously, I, uh, look at me. But anyway, <laughs> there, there is such a thing as, as hormonal imbalances and chemical problems and, and just a whole lot of people who did fry their brains on drugs. Uh, I mean, really, and they just don't synapse properly anymore. And I've dealt with a lot of people like that over the years. And so uh, that's my disclaimer. However, having said that, there are a lot of people who've bought into the valley. You're depressed, you're low, you need help, and that help comes not from God, not from His Word, but it comes through some kind of a psychobabble accompanied with some kind of a medication that was never meant for even what you're going through, but it seems to help people, so why not give it to them anyway? And so you just need to be careful. You know, the psalmist was in a lot of deep valleys. We read this morning, he said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, man, whoa. How could you imagine taking a detour? Hey, where do you want to go? How about the valley of the shadow of death? No, I'll pass on that, you know. Read the Psalms. David was depressed. He was discouraged. He was downhearted. And it wasn't that he didn't have better medical care than we do or didn't have Blue Cross. It's that he had the Lord, and he filled his mind and his heart with the Lord. He spoke to his heart. He encouraged his own soul, filling it with the Word of God. Every mountain and hill brought low. Now, high places need to be demolished. Here we'd be talking about pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, about humbling yourself before God, tearing down any high and lofty thoughts you have about yourself forgetting self-esteem and esteeming others better than yourself. And then the crooked places shall be made straight. Crooked has the connotation of twisted or perverse. This is referring to sin. And so we would say, have you fallen into sin? Are things that you once considered sin now just a regular everyday part of your life? Get rid of them. Flee from them. And then the rough ways smooth. We sometimes describe people as being rough around the edges. And so we can ask, what are your rough edges? What makes it really tough for other people to be around you or to get along with you? 
Do you ever excuse yourself by saying, hey, that's just the way I am? Right, and that's the problem. Yeah, you, if you mean that in a repentant way, that's great, but usually it's a defense. Hey, that's the way I am. Huh. Genetically, you know, and I was nourished that way. Hey, you, what you see is what you get. Well, nobody's happy with the way you are. <laughs> Least of all, God. Or are you blaming others for your reactions? Well, sure, I punched him in the face, but he deserved it. You know, I mean, that, this is the whole point. God wants to smooth us out. He wants to knock off those rough edges. These are hard issues. They affect believers. Believers are the ones who need to repent. We need to adopt repentance as a lifestyle. It should be a constant attitude of our heart. The key is to really believe the Lord is imminently coming. Then you'll want to stay ready for His return. The Isaiah passage ended with a remarkable promise. In verse 6, it says, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. All flesh means that God was calling out to all people everywhere with the message of salvation. Unbelievers see the salvation of God by seeing Jesus. They can only see Jesus as He lives in and through believers. To me, it seems to imply this. If believers repent, unbelievers will believe. Does that make sense? It's a little bit different because normally we're preaching repentance to unbelievers. But what, what does an unbeliever need to do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If a believer will repent and start living for God, unbelievers will take note and they will believe. John's baptism also signified, it says here, the remission of sins. One of the meanings of remission is liberty. And remember the symbolism here. They were being baptized near the spot Joshua had led their ancestors into the promised land. In the promised land, the children of Israel battled enemies from a position of victory as they went forward, claiming what God had already given them to possess. I believe this is the sense in which we understand the phrase, the remission of sins. John's baptism didn't save anyone. It didn't wash away your sins. But it did remind you that you were liberated from the power of your sins so that you could walk in victory and go forward claiming what God had given you to possess. Like their ancestors who were to come into the promised land and battle from a place of victory and liberty, the people who emerged from the waters of baptism were to understand that they had the liberty to walk in the power of God. What does that life of victory look like? Well, in verses 7 through 14, you're told to repent and you will start revealing the realness of the kingdom. The current catchphrase in Christian churches is seeker-sensitive. Some of you are familiar with it. Uh, we're told we need to be more sensitive to people seeking God. We don't want to push them away. We want to bring them into the church slowly and gently, not say anything harsh to them. Don't mention that they're sinners right away. Be, don't use the S word around them because then they won't come back. John adopted that kind of preaching in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now get this, these people were coming to church. They were coming. They wanted to be there. They were flocking out to the wilderness to go to church. It would be like me standing on the steps, not even in the pulpit, saying, you snake. I didn't think I'd ever see you at church, you viper. 
Not seeker sensitive, but very effective. <laughs> the closest I ever came to this, I th- and I'm, I'm still, uh, I'm not sure if it was from the Lord, I think it was, but one Easter years ago, many years ago at the YMCA on an Easter, I, I just, yeah, I was filled with the Spirit or something else, but... Uh, <laughs> At the end of the service, I, I, I say, I, very few people responded to the altar call. And, and I wasn't mad. I don't get mad at those things, but I was really touched by it. And I said, look, I said, many of you are here today for the one day every year that you come to church, Easter Sunday. Next week, you won't be here. You won't be anywhere. We might see you again next year. I said, You're, what are you doing? Why are you even here? if it's not to hear the gospel and to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And it was pretty straightforward, and none of those people came back. (laughs) But that's the kind of thing John was doing on a regular basis. And so the imagery here, uh, John, kind of a seeker-insensitive type, you know, and so if people say something, oh, Pastor Gene offends people, say, yeah, he's into seeker-insensitivity. Models himself after John the Baptist. The imagery here is a desert fire that forces the vipers to flee ahead of it. God's wrath is the fire, and the multitudes were those coming out to be baptized. There needs to be an element in preaching of the coming judgment of God against sin. You need to know that you are lost before you can be saved. It doesn't do anybody any good to be sensitive to them and not tell them about the gospel. And so by uh, referring to them as vipers, John was telling the multitudes that they were children of the devil. He was the serpent, they were his offspring, his brood. Everyone born of a woman, with the exception of Jesus Christ, inherits a sin nature. They are lost and under the dominion of the devil. Even the Jews, God's chosen people, were not saved by their birth, verse 8. Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. They fled to John as vipers. Having heard him, there was a decision to be made. There was no cultural or religious or spiritual heritage that could save them. They must make a personal, individual decision to identify with the Savior. Multitudes did that and signified it by water baptism. Not all of them were sincere. Not all of them were saved. And so the image changes. No longer vipers fleeing, they were trees whose spiritual life could be seen in whether or not they bore any fruit. The multitudes wanted some clarification, and so in verse 10 it says, they asked him, what shall we do then? What does repentance and the remission or deliverance of sins look like when it issues forth from the heart? John gave three examples which reveal the fruit of true spiritual life. In the first example, you're characterized by compassion. He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. He who has food, let him do likewise. This isn't early form of communism or even any kind of a program of social concern. It's that you have become compassionate. You now care for the plight of others less fortunate than yourselves and see yourself as a channel of God's love to them. You become others-oriented. In the next example, you are characterized by a lack of covetousness. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. 
Jews were employed as tax collectors by Rome. They were hated for it. They were notorious for their dishonesty. Romans gathered funds for their government by farming out the collection. Tax collectors earned their own living by adding a percentage to the total, whatever they could get away with. And they kept this money for themselves. It was rooted in covetousness of material goods. In the final example, you are characterized by contentment. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, and what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. These again were Jews employed by Rome to guard the temple. Any Jew that had anything to do with Rome was hated. These were like a local police force subordinate to the Roman army. They weren't paid very much, and so they would abuse their power and shake down their fellow Jews for bribes. A lot of them were Italian. No, they were Jews. <laughs> Not so if they were bringing forth the fruit of repentance. In each of these examples, by the way, material things are either shared or shunned in favor of spiritual blessings. At some point or another, if you're a genuine person bringing forth repentance, you will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all the other things will be added unto you. Now, especially in the case of tax collectors and soldiers, repentance and the remission of sins could literally be seen and experienced. You were a hated tax collector extorting more money than was due the Roman government. You were a hated guard or soldier under the Roman system, shaking down your fellow citizens, taking advantage of your power. And then all of a sudden you were baptized into the repentance and remission of your sins. And you began to treat people as you would have yourself treated. You begin to love them with the love of God. You were fair and honest. And the Jew who was seeing this in you would be astonished. Some amazing, radical change had taken place in your life. Something supernatural was going on. A change of heart that led to radical changes in behavior. It spoke of the realness of the kingdom to these people. They were living as if the kingdom had already come. They were revealing the kingdom to others. From our point of view, the kingdom is yet to come. We're not in it. This isn't it. That's good news, by the way. But Jesus is going to come and establish it in His second coming. We can live according to its principles now. We can reveal its realness as we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and our neighbors as ourself. I want to work backwards from what we've learned. Ask yourself, am I revealing the realness of kingdom living? Am I revealing the realness of kingdom living? If I am not, if you are not, then there's a word for you. You know what it is? It's got an exclamation point on the end of it. It's the word repent. And here's how we would go through that. First of all, ask yourself things like, am I pursuing a detour? Have I detoured? And what is that detour? Is it doctrinal? Is it geographic? Is it relational? Is it a, a career? What, what detour am I on? Or is there a depression in my life that I am seeking to fill? 
in a way other than by obedience to God's word and the disciplines of the Christian life? Or what place of pride or self needs to be demolished and torn down and leveled in my life? Or is there some sin that I need to confess? Something maybe that years ago was so repulsive to me or just outside of the realm of being a Christian, but now, well, you know, over time, I've gained liberty in that area. And I, I'm so much more mature now that I can do this and get away with it. But there's that part of you in your heart that knows that it's wrong and that it's caused you to cause grief to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or what rough edges have you grown comfortable with? This is something that'll hit every one of us. Every one of us, I believe, has that sense that, well, that's the way I am. I'm a work in progress. Great. What kind of progress are you making? When's the last time you made any progress in that one area that drives your spouse crazy? That one area that, that just keeps popping up. Now, repentance is not a burden. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and these are from Jesus. Repentance lifts the burden that your heart is already under by being involved in these things. You know, it's hard to have rough edges and be up and down valleys and hills all the time if you're using it as an analogy of walking through life. It's better to be on a straight, narrow path that is level, not turning to a detour, not going left or right, but just steady on with the Lord, laying aside the sin and the weight that so easily besets you and just steady on with, with the Lord. So this isn't a burden. In a minute, I'm going to ask us all to pray just silently, quietly to ourselves. Every one of us has to repent of something today. If you don't think you need to repent of something, then you need to repent of that because you're lying to yourself and you're lying to God. And so we're going to spend just a few minutes here as we close while we have some worship music. And just by yourself, with yourself, not out loud, not as a show, come before the Lord. Bring your heart and repent of those things that He has been showing you this morning so that you can get up from this place and reveal radical Christian living, repenting as a believer so unbelievers will believe. Let's pray just to ourselves. we continue to pray, some of our deacons have come forward, and if you'd like to be prayed for, if you want to make a point of contact and pray, be prayed for, maybe you want to receive Christ or you, you just feel a, a need to be prayed for, come on down even now uh, and, and just go to one of the guys and, and just pray with them. Uh, or after we close or as we're closing, come on down and pray. 
Uh, it, it can be a really precious thing to come before the Lord and to have a moment that you can remember in your mind and store in your mind and say, yeah, I, I did. I came down and I prayed with one of the deacons. I prayed with Pat. I prayed with Rhett. And, and I poured out my heart to them. And I just thank the Lord for the work that he's doing. So don't be embarrassed to do that. If that's on your heart, there's a time when we're doing some business with God in a powerful and a real way. And so if you want to come down, come down. Uh, if not, after we're done in praying and as we begin to sing to close our service, come on down uh, and, and uh, just let the Lord work in your life. Now, Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. Not so much a study of your word as your word studying us, as your word cracking open our hardened hearts, Lord, discerning between the thoughts and the intents of our heart and between our soul and our spirit, Lord. Oh, Father, we thank you for that. It hurts a little bit maybe, but it's such a release. It, it relieves pressure. It relieves, relieves stress. It, it's rolling a burden that we've been carrying off of us and onto you, repenting, Lord, so that we might know the joy of radical Christian living again, so that others might come to us and say, what is going on with you? How can you live that way? in the situation you find yourself in. And the only possible answer is really a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to reveal Jesus to others. And so cause us, Lord, to uh, live a repentant lifestyle. We pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand. We are going to sing this last chorus. Come on down, be prayed for, either now or after the service is over. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. I will wait for you, Almighty God, in the beauty of your holiness. I will worship you, O Prince of Peace, in the beauty of your
in the beauty of your holiness. May God bless you greatly today.